Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. My guest today is Scott Dickers, and Scott started his career by writing the syndicated comic strip Jim's Journal. And at the, then at the age of 23, he started The Onion, you know, The Onion, as a satirical print newspaper in 1988. He's got a slew of bestsellers, including How to Write Funny uh, series. It's a series, How to Write Funny, How to Write Funnier, and How to Write Funniest, Outrageous Marketing, and a novel called The Joke at the End of the World. His podcast, How to Write Funny, is one of the first podcasts that I I just religiously subscribe to. It's a tremendous resource for anyone who's interested in getting into the comedy game or just knowing how comedy works behind the scenes. And I'm going to bring him out right now. It's Scott Dickers. Scott. Hello, hello. I really appreciate you doing the show. It's my pleasure to be here. How's I'm the weather? In... We have not done this before. Yeah. How's the weather in Minneapolis? It's cold. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's October now. So it's in the, you know, the freezing temperature okay. realm. Yeah. We, we get like two months of summer and then the rest of the year is Arctic. Yeah. I got to tell you, we, we talked a little bit before we came out, we moved to Huntsville from South Bend. So we left the lake effect snow and all the fun stuff that the folks around the Great Lakes get and the weather that's below zero for a couple months and ended up down here in Huntsville. And it's like, I think it's maybe 45 right now. And I am oh, just, that's cold. I'm freezing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I almost, yeah. when we moved down, I almost got rid of all my sweaters, and it turns out I actually need those, even though I'm in Alabama. No, you get soft when you move a place like that. Like, I remember I lived in L.A. for a year and then came back to Minneapolis, and I was like, I, I forgot how brutal it is, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, you know, it gets, it gets below freezing maybe one night a year in L.A. You get a little frost in the ground, and, you know, you panic. And the whole city shuts yeah. down, so I don't have any snow plows. And yeah, here yeah. you get two feet of snow, and it's like we're barreling through. We're doing this. Yeah, yeah. We we got a dusting last winter. I've been here for about a year, and we got a dusting last winter, and it was full freakout mode. It's absolutely. Like, you know, they don't know what the hell stay home. Doing. Don't do not get on the roads. <laughs> yeah. As as I told you before we started, I was hoping that we could maybe cover a little bit of new ground or a little bit of ground that hasn't been covered as much in some of the podcasts that you've been on. Yeah, you know, I like I said, I really I, I do follow you, and I've listened to a lot of the podcasts you've been on. And my my favorite one was the one you did with Joel Byers, the the, the hot breath one, just because Joel is. He does all his research and just asks some of the best questions in the business. So that was my favorite one. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy this one as much as you enjoyed being on with Joel. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Joel is great. And I agree. So and I, of course, I'm excited to do something different and talk about whatever you want to talk about. Right. Or whatever your listeners slash viewers want to talk. Yeah. About. And I hopefully I'm not being too provocative by saying this, but. So many people see you as a humorist who's a great marketer, and in you, I see a marketer who's a great humorist. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and it's 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 evident in listening to how you put the comic strip together, how you put the onion together, how you started selling T-shirts. I mean, you did you observed in order to come up with the ideas that you put out and 
did a lot of A-B testing and, and things like that in order to find out what your audience was. And I feel like you found out that by going narrow instead of wide was, you were one of the first people to understand that going narrow versus wide was the way to really find out who your tribe was. Do, do I have that kind of correct? I don't think I thought that consciously. Uh huh. It was more like, I'm sure the process that most stand-up comics go through where they find their voice, it's sort of a process of attrition. It's a lot of you know, trial and error, a lot of A-B testing. So, you know, I started drawing comic strips that I thought were funny or probably at first I was drawing comic strips that I thought the syndicates would like, you know, so I'm kind of playing to that audience. But then those didn't really come across as very genuine or very authentically me. And so the comic strip that I finally hit it with, Jim's Journal, which you mentioned, just happened to be, you know, the latest in a long line of comic strips that I tried. And it was more personal. It, it was, it was diff more different. It, it was a radical departure from what most comic strips were. I actually hate comic strips. I really don't like them. I don't read them. I find them to be really hokey and the jokes are never funny. So I made a comic strip that purposefully made fun of that, commented on that, in a meta way, yet still delivered on what audiences need from a comic strip, which is laughter, regular characters that you see and fall in love with and come back to day after day. But I just wanted to do it in a totally different way. And it, yeah, no one was as surprised as I was when it kind of took off. Uh -huh. And yeah, you're right. I started doing t-shirts. That was a thing, you know, I was in Madison, Wisconsin, I had my comic strip and it was really popular on campus. So I think I was approached by a local t-shirt shop who had had some success with a, another cartoonist who had a comic strip that got pretty popular before mine called Down and Out Dog, a guy by the name of James Sturm. He now runs the this wonderful cartooning school in Vermont, oh, in Grand cool. Junction, Vermont. And it's the Center for Cartoon Studies, what it's called. And they teach people how to be graphic artists. Great place. Anyway, she had had some success selling his t-shirts, so she approached me to do t-shirts with my characters on them. And my comic strip was really simple. It was like stick figures and really brief, like almost no words, just as few words as possible yeah. and as few lines as possible to get the idea across. And so it made for really simple t-shirts and those t-shirts just sold like hotcakes. That was everybody on campus seemed to have one of these things. And so I started making more. And then when The Onion started, you know, one of the first things we thought was, well, we should do onion t-shirts. Like, this is a thing we, you know, I kind of know how to do this, had some success with this. And so, you know, we put like the onion logo on a t-shirt and some funny headlines or funny sayings that we came up with. Like the onion motto is you are dumb. We had t-shirts said you are dumb. And, you know, that, that store sort of built over time. And yeah, I'm, I'm big on, getting feedback from the audience. Like yeah. you need that. Any stand-up comic knows this. Like if people aren't laughing, let's try something different. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. So I would, I would try a bunch of t-shirts and some didn't work. We just stopped making them, you know, and you just keep making t-shirts like the ones that people seem to be buying and liking. And, you know, some of the more successful people in comedy are doing merch. It's so much easier to do now. You just get one of these companies that does everything. They do the fulfillment and everything. And I'm still not on that bandwagon. I'm excited to get on it at some point here, but I've been out of the t-shirt game for quite some time. So in thinking, you know, when I take a look at Jim's journal, which is different from anything that had been done before, I mean, you could you could argue was was Larson doing his thing at the same time? When did, yeah, Farside. Yeah, Gary, Gary Larson was one of him and Bill Waterston with Calvin and Hobbes. They were 
two of the best people in the business at the time. Yeah, when yeah. I and I would compare it to those more than anything else. And, the it, oh, you know, it's non sequitur in nature. And it's funny when I read the reviews of because you've got you've got chronological books of them on Amazon. It's so mm -hmm. funny to read the views because the reviews because they love it or they hate it. And that's the reaction you want. Yeah. The, yeah. Isn't, uh, doesn't that seem, doesn't that seem true throughout your career? Somewhat. So Jim's journal is, is a meta comic. So the problem with meta humor is that some people will just never get it. They don't understand why is it drawn so poorly? You know, why isn't it funny? I don't get it. And so that's the same problem that Andy Kaufman had because he was a meta comedian. Right. And so you had people who loved him, who worshiped him and thought he was a genius. And people who were just like hated it, booing him during his performances, you know, because he was up there eating ice cream. He wasn't doing an act, yeah. you know, where he'd read from the great Gatsby and not do any jokes and people would heckle him for that. So the fact that some of the people hate you makes you more lovable to the people who love you because it just adds a dimension mm -hmm. to your comedy. It's like, oh, isn't it funny? Those people hate him. Yeah. Yeah. And so... I never really was able to sort of leverage that for Jim's journal because it's a comic strip kind of exists in a different realm, sort of for the onion later when, you know, it's not necessarily people who hate the onion, but it's people who don't understand that it's fake. Right. You know, they think it's real. Yeah. And so they get really upset when they see certain stories and they write angry letters and that's really fun for the people who like it, you know, uh -huh. to, sometimes I'll go to college and I'll read some of the letters that the angry letters that the onion has gotten over the years from uh -huh. people who didn't understand that it was fake and they just kill like those are so funny those letters uh -huh. so yeah it's a fun dimension to, to, to comedy when you have that dichotomy between your tribe and then normally like and you figure I got my tribe they like me who cares about anybody else and in most comedy that's fine but some things violate so many rules or do things so differently that there's this other group that just hates it. Yeah. And they can't help but speak up about how much they hate it. Uh -huh. like, I would never do that. If I didn't like something, I just wouldn't pay attention to it. I right. wouldn't bother to like write hate mail to it. Yeah. It's like, who's got that kind of time? I don't know. But it is fun to, to have that. What well, One of my hobbies is the joining Facebook groups that are just stupid boomers. And uh, I just love it. I, I normally, I, you know, here's what I do. I normally don't post anything. I just read it and take screenshots of things so that I can put it in my act. Oh, but if I do comment, it's always a trolling type thing and I get kicked out. So it, oh. then I have to find another one. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a stupid hobby, but it's what I do. <laughs> I think that's a wonderful hobby. Yeah. It's a very modern hobby. Yeah. You're a troll. You're an internet troll. Yeah. Yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Now, one of the things, you know, we, we talked a little bit about like A-B testing and understanding what your tribe is and, and being a creative type person, sometimes it's hard to find out those people who are kindred spirits who are going to understand what you say. And you said you went through different iterations of the comic, tr just trying to find what your niche was and your niche ended up being what you thought was funny and, and meta. And then, and then the onion is like that and not, not to make too much commentary, but I feel like the, Stand-ups especially, they try to fit a mold when they start out that they think they need to fill. And this is this is how people are seeing me. So this is this is the type of humor I have to write. And they're not emotionally invested in it. And then they end up quitting because they don't do well because they didn't find out their voice. And I think that that is something that you were a little bit you were a little bit more patient about because if if you go through all these iterations of a comic and then do all the things you did with the onion as far as doing this making changes looking at a t-shirt and saying hey this isn't working so let's let's kill this one and go to another one 
What type of patience does it take for somebody in this industry to finally understand where they fit in? Yeah, it's one of the hardest things to do. And I think now, especially people expect instant fame and instant social media stardom sometimes because it can be, be so easy and so quick if you get a viral video that catches on or whatever, but it's hard to know yourself, you know? And so part of how to write funny, I, I started this community. There's a Facebook group. There are students in my courses and such. And one of the things we do for each other is I invite students to just put themselves on the Facebook group, put a little video of themselves doing comedy and just let everyone comment on it. What do we think of you? What, what vibe do we get from you? Uh -huh. Because it's really hard to get that from your friends. It's even hard to get it from a, an audience because it's not like you can ask them, you know? So it can be really handy just to get that shorthand, just so you know going in. And you're still going to have to work a long time to do it. But, you know, other advice that comedians often throw out there, and it's good advice, is that you have to be obsessed in order to succeed in the comedy business because mm -hmm. you do work for many years for no pay. Yeah. And if you aren't obsessed with it, you're going to fail and you're going to quit. You, ha you have to be obsessed enough to do it through the years where no one likes what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. And so during those years, you're figuring yourself out, you're figuring out what audience is like, and hopefully they converge at some point and something that feels honest and funny to you is also honest and, and funny seeming to the audience. Mm. So it's a big Venn diagram. There's what the audience is like and there's what you like and what you can do given your voice and your, the way you look or whatever else you bring to the table. And there's a little space where they meet. You know, I believe that everybody has that little space where the two can meet and really lucky comedians will find it straight away. You know, Louis Anderson told this great story of trying stand-up for the first time. He got up on stage and he killed and he never stopped killing. You know, mm -hmm. he knew who he was. He was the fat guy. He was the guy who loved to eat and it just worked. You mm -hmm. know, the, he, he filled a niche and stand-up comedy was fairly, you know, kind of a niche thing to be doing in the first place. Uh -huh. And it's rare now. It's really rare to find that. Now, it does happen where somebody just kind of is a personality and they know their personality and they can do it but it's hard. So you need that obsession to get you through. The analogy I like to use is it's like rocket fuel. Your obsession is like rocket fuel. You need enough to break the earth's orbit. And if you don't have enough, you're never going to break orbit. Once you break orbit and you figure out who you are and you find humor that connects with audiences because you found that, that center point in the Venn diagram, you're sailing through space. Everything's great. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's funny, you know, on a personal note, I I didn't start doing stand up until I was 52 and I actually did pretty well early on, but I saw my niche as being pretty squeaky clean and being just being the all-around guy, just being a regular dude. And I'm not a regular dude. And I'm angry. I'm angry about my generation. I'm, I'm angry about a lot of things. So when I came down to Huntsville, I'm, I'm changing it up now. And it's hard because I'm totally re, reinventing what I am as a comedian. But I like what I write and I like what I do on stage more. That's, uh, that's great. That's, that's very George Carlin-esque of you. Yeah. <laughs> to just... Change that, you know, you're doing great. You're doing fine, but just change it. Yeah. Change. Yeah. <laughs> and I always, I always tell, tell comedians that they really need, Carlin is such an example that they really need to just go through his albums from the first one to the last one, because it's, it's more of a shift change than any comedian I've ever seen. You know, Richard Pryor's it was, close. It was scary. Yeah, yeah, it was scary for him. You know, he, he went from playing big venues to playing small clubs at one point when he was doing pretty well. Yeah. And yeah, he, he kind of did it twice because he did it the famous time where he changed from his suit to yeah. the hippie dippy weatherman. But then he did it again when he went from sort of the hippie dippy weatherman to the angry old man. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. And it was a whole, 
a whole thing. And yeah. Yeah. You got to You got to admire that. It's it's really a, a wonder to behold his career. Right. And his his talent for writing and his being so careful with words and phrasing and all that that was that was something that you you really you can't replicate that's something you have to be born with and that was his obsession you know he yeah. he works so hard on his act before you ever saw it that you have no idea and richard pryor was the same way you know he used to i i know people who came up with him at, at the comedy store and you know he would go do an hour at the comedy store and just eat shit on stage I, it mm. was it was just awful and then he'd do the same thing the next night and it's a little bit better a little bit better a little bit better then all of a sudden he's got a best-selling comedy album but it looks like he just went up and did it i mean that's how the greats do it you know and that's the process yeah and i'm just you know kind of getting started with that now, like yourself in my fifties doing more stand-up because I haven't really done a lot mm. my whole life, but it's such an important comedy muscle. And I, I have the time now and I have the, I have the sort of mental space for it. So I'm, I'm getting out and doing that as much as I can now. Yeah. And one of the things that, that I've talked about quite a bit is if, even if you're, you're just going to an open mic or something like that, it creates this sense of urgency in your writing and your performing that you actually do things. It, 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 it makes you do things that you would put off normally. When you've got, when you're going to be on stage at nine o'clock tonight, you're going to do some work. And if you weren't going to be on stage, you might not have done that work. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying this thing that I recommend all comics do people who want to succeed in comedy fast is create some sort of accountability deadline for yourself every week. And so about, I don't know, seven, eight months ago, I started this podcast, Scott Dickers around where I just turn on the camera and I try to be funny for 10 minutes. And so it really puts me out there. And I feel like if Carlin were around now with all these social media tools, he might've done that because you're forced to write 10 minutes a week and then you can sift through that to find stuff to try on stage, you know, but it's like a, instead of writing it or recording it in your voice memo, you literally put it on video and you put it out there. It really turns up the heat on you to make sure that it's at least, <laughs> you know, your best work that you can do from the gate, you know, uh -huh. from the starting gate. Now I see you as being a, very ardent observer of what's going on in the comedy world. And one of the things I wanted to ask you is what do you see that's working with comedians and what do you see comedians doing that they shouldn't be doing? Well, it's, uh, it's a great question. I feel like the, the problems with comedy are always the same, regardless of the medium can, can be in print, can be on stage, can be on TV. One of the biggest problems that people in the comedy business have is they tend to do what's trendy or to do what they think people want. They do what everyone else is doing. And it's really hard to do something different, to stand out and say, I'm going to boldly try this thing that nobody else is doing. But it's the people who do that who succeed big. You know, the comedians who go up there and do something totally unexpected that no one, like, so right now, every comedian is getting up there and they're telling personal stories about their life. You know, they're kind of doing what Bill Burr does. And that's not the only way to do comedy. You know, right. you look at George Carlin was philosophizing. Steve Martin was just being silly, making stuff up that had no connection. We didn't know anything about his life, but it's a trend now and it's a thing. And I would like to see people not doing that. I would like to see people trying to do something different and breaking the mold. So I'm in the middle of trying to figure out what that is for me. Like, what is, what is the way that I go on stage and do something different, still connect with the audience? So yeah, it's, and in print, it's the same thing. Like people are copying what other people are doing. They're using cliches, cliches, not just in terms of jokes that we've all heard, but like formats that are tired and worn, you know, let's, let's do something totally different. That's what always makes it in comedy. People get really excited when there's something different and it's hard now because 
there's so much comedy out there. So many people on social media doing it really well, like really killing it. And it's tough to come up with something that no one else is doing. So <laughs> yeah. that part of it is harder. Yes, it's easier to kind of break in because the whole field has been democratized. When I was coming up, it was like you were either on TV or you were nowhere. Right. You know, there was no in between. Yeah. And now you have so many comedy clubs and you have all these social media channels. You can do a podcast, you can be on YouTube, you can be on TikTok. And so that's great. It's easier to, to jump in the water and try stuff, but it is harder to try to find something that no one else is doing. However, you can always just do it better and you can do it in a way that's very unique to you that no one else can do. Because, you know, at the end of the day, no one has your voice. Right. So I do think it's possible. And I'm not daunted by that because... And, you know, I actually am kind of inspired by that because if it's harder to succeed, I get a little more jazzed. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. okay, this is great. This is right. a challenge. Yeah. You know, uh. I, I can do this, <laughs> you know. But I, by the same token, I don't like to compete in the red waters. You know, I like to go where no one else is. So when you do something different, you get that advantage. No one else is doing what you're doing. Yeah. I, I love the analogy of the blue water, water st strategy. That's fantastic. And, and really, the funny thing is, is a lot of the folks that we see as being groundbreaking are really, they, they really went back a lot of years and they more or less either knowingly or unknowingly replicated something that had been done years ago. One of the things I see, like Mitch Hedberg was an absolute genius, but when you look at the, the style and the tempo and the staccato of his delivery, you can put it right up next to Henny Youngman and it's very, very close. And, you know, the subject matter was modernized and he was a, a lot more non sequitur, but the delivery was pretty darn close. Yeah. One-liner comics were pretty standard in the Borscht Belt, you know, and he just, yeah, he modernized it. He, he brought a lot of weird energy to it that we hadn't seen, you know, like you said, modernize the jokes. And that's another beauty of this business is that there's nothing new. Uh -huh. Everything's been done. But if you go back far enough, you can look at something that was really popular and you can reinvent it and make it your own and bring it back. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. You're not being unoriginal. So it's a, it's a, treasure trove the past <laughs> like yeah. to just look at all these yeah. great performers vaudeville is is just a is a an absolute gold mine to research to study you know and just watch and just see because those, those people were were stand-up comics they, mm. they went from stage to stage and you know had faced the same struggles that comics face now so right. people haven't changed you know people haven't changed in a million years. So all the same comedy is probably going to, it's probably going to work. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just really, it's really, you know, bringing it up to modern times. Now, right. I mean, you are really doing something, you know, first off, it's brave that you're, you're getting into back into the standup and, and taking, taking swings at that how are you approaching like even grading your set so you you, you go up you do five ten minutes what do you take back from that and how do you make it better the next time you get up it's so funny because most people start with the stand-up and they they do other things they work on tv yeah whatever and so i did all that and my process for that was very similar to this it's like you try something, you see how the room likes it. In in when I was coming up, my room was the writer's room. It's other comedy writers, and you see if it works. And if it does, you kind of riff on it a little bit. And the writers in a writer's room are a lot more helpful in writing comedy than an audience is at a, a stand-up <laughs> open mic, for example. <laughs> They're not gonna help you write the material. So I find I have to do a lot more just guessing about why something didn't work as well as I thought it did, why this other thing got a good laugh, even though I didn't think it was that strong. And, you know, I've had a fair amount of experience doing that in the past too, because sometimes you're doing a project, let's say with a virtual writer's room, and you're not necessarily getting everybody's unvarnished opinion. 
you're sending out a list of 10 jokes and you're getting a note back like, oh, I like number three and number eight. And so I have to start thinking, well, why didn't those other ones work? You know, you judging that against my own horse sense about what works and what doesn't. And so in standup, you can go back and try stuff again. You can rework something, try it again. I do find generally it's the concepts that always work. And I, that's always been a watchword for me is like concept is king in comedy. Mm -hmm. If you have a good bit, it generally is a good concept. There's an observation or something you're doing that is really connecting with people and they're, they're laughing before you've even told any jokes about it. That being said, you don't have to have that in standup. You can just riff off of something that's, you know, kind of a regular everyday thought and you can make it funny as it goes along. But I find it really helps to start with a really strong concept. Just like, you know, an observation that about the world that you haven't really heard anyone make before. So you can hit that first before anyone else and then try to hyperbolize it or use irony to accentuate, use some funny filter to start turning it into a joke, it's, it's going to be good. And so that's all academic, you know, that's all as far as the writing goes. But of course, in standup, there's this whole other dimension of you as a person, your confidence on stage, how you're delivering the material. And so that's the muscle that I'm talking about, like getting comfortable on stage, getting comfortable bombing, getting comfortable experimenting. It's a whole other you know, a whole other aspect to writing comedy that I haven't really had to deal with that much in, in the print and comic strips and so forth. People who perform often would, would say to me, how do, you, how do you do that? How do you write something and then put it out and know it's going to be funny because you haven't tested it with an audience? And to me, that's easy because all, all I've done most of my career, because I tested it with the writer's room, you know, and mm. we trust our judgment. We trust ourselves. How do you go out and, and perform on stage and, you know, get feedback from, from an audience and then, and then go back and rewrite it and then go back again. And how do you know that your delivery and your stage presence is going to carry the day? That seems incredibly stressful and much harder than what I've been doing. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's all, it's totally fascinating. And I appreciate you saying I'm brave. I'm really not brave. I'm just totally obsessed with comedy and I just want to be doing any and all kinds of it. Yeah. And my stand-up muscle really atrophied during all the years I was doing my comic strips and the onion because I was a total behind the scenes guy. And then I started, you know, I worked on TV shows and I did radio for many years and was always hidden. It was never putting myself out there. Then occasionally I would start to go out I mentioned I would go to colleges and I would do a little talk. I would represent the onion and I did that for a few years. Then I would go out as myself. That was kind of my big moment was like, Oh, I'm not going to be the onion guy anymore. I'm just going to be me. I'll talk about the onion a little bit, but I got to be entertaining as myself. And you know, when you go into a college, you're doing an hour. And so I've been working on that act, you know, for boy, like 10 years now. And I would always work in new material and I always try new stuff, but you know, I'm not doing it every night. I'm not even doing it three times a week. You know, right. I might be going to a college every, I don't know, month, twice a month at the most. And so that's not enough. So I'm excited to be doing more comedy now. I just did a showcase in Chicago and now I'm back in Minneapolis where I, I try to hit the, the open mics and the occasional showcase like every three, four times a week, I would say. Isn't um, it isn't it cool to be among the kids and just getting yeah. that energy from them? Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I try not to think about the age difference. I try to observe what they're doing and see how I see the age of the audience and I see what's working and why because ultimately I think the audiences just want something that's funny. Yep. We don't care about the age or sex or anything about the performer. They just want humor. But I do think there's a little bit of, you know, who are you, grandpa, type of an attitude. But mostly it's very kind. Like, I think there's a new vibe. And we mentioned Joel Byers. Like, I think he's been a big part of that, fostering this non-competitive, you know, let's, hey, let's all help each other. This is not a zero-sum game right. attitude, which I've tried to do as well in all my comedy classes and the books that I write and stuff. I just want to see other people succeed and I want there to be more comedy in the world. 
So I have no patience for any kind of competitiveness or even any kind of like weird vibes or whatever. I go there, I'm polite, I do my thing, I watch the other comedians and uh, I'm supportive and I get the hell out of there. I'm not, right. not staying to drink, I'm not staying to smoke. <laughs> that I'm definitely, I never did that. I was always an old man. I was an old man from the time I was 18 because I always preferred to work on my comedy as opposed to go party. Uh -huh, <laughs> I uh -huh. was into that. And you know, a lot of the comedians I talk to that have achieved any amount of success are more like that. They're, they're more obsessed, they're obsessed like you yeah. said, they're obsessed with the comedy versus being obsessed with the comedy lifestyle. Absolutely. And it's, it's hard. It's hard to see unless you are in it. You, you can you can really tell the ones that are really working it. Even even if it's only, even if they've only been doing it for a year, you can tell somebody that's been doing it for a year and has just that's all they've been thinking about twenty four seven for that year. And then the ones that are at the same amount of open mics or the same amount of showcases, but they are really, really into the after party. They, they, the, the only reason they're there is to go to the after party and say yeah, they're and one I, of the comics. I get that. Like it is a social thing. And at some of these open mics, there's like two people in the audience. So you're mostly performing for your fellow comic buddies. Yeah. And so a lot of the jokes are, you know, maybe in jokes or, jokes that you know they're going to like and, and they're laughing because they're your buddy and stuff. I actually prefer to be a stranger because then I know that any laughs I'm getting are real laughs and I'm always playing to the ultimate audience. And I think that's hard to separate the social aspect from the fact that it's the real audience that really matters for your career. Right. And you got to play to them ultimately. Yeah. And I think the best way to play to them is to not hang out and party and to... Uh -huh. Go home and get some rest and write some more. Yeah, no know? doubt. It's it's funny because I've caught myself getting into the into a crutch of playing to the back of the room and wanting those young comics to laugh. And in the end, that doesn't matter. No, not really. It's you have to be universally funny, and a lot of times those you know. Like I watch so much comedy, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn. I'm trying, I'm, I'm doing research for the podcast. I, I want com comedians on here that haven't been found yet, but are just hilarious. You know, that's, that's, I, I like to talk to the old school folks. I like to talk to people who are currently touring and doing great. And those feature acts that are just, they're ready to be that headliner, but they just haven't gotten the chance yet. So I like to mix it up with that, but I watch so much and there's so little that I actually laugh out loud at because I recognize it's funny. I recognize the, the audience is going to think it's funny, but I know what's coming. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't surprise me, but it's going to surprise the audience. Yeah. Another thing I see a lot of comics doing now, speaking of cliches and what they're doing wrong is I see a lot of this Anthony Jesselneck structured joke mm -hmm. where they do a little twist at the end that turns it dark and twists the meaning of what they had said before. Yeah. The misplaced focus joke. I, I would like to see somebody try something other than that. Uh -huh. And I've, you know, I've seen a lot of them that, that will do a few of those and they'll do a story that includes a couple of those, but they also, they'll get an observation in there. It's not so much misdirect. It's, there's a little misdirect in there once in a while, but they, they use all of it in the story and it makes it better. So their tags come from different places, but it, it makes everything better. And it appeals to everybody in the audience. Somebody may not have liked this tag over here, but boy, that one was funny. So it keeps you, it keeps you interested. The real successful work is going to incorporate all 11 of the funny filters that I define in my book. And if you look at any of the great comics, you look at any of their bits, you can break down, oh, there was the irony, there was the character, there was the reference, there was mm. the misplaced focus, there was the madcap. Madcap is the one that most people don't include, and it's really valuable. Some kind of funny face or a funny body movement or mm -hmm. something there's been this school for a long time of you have to just stand there and do this. And maybe it's partly because 
late night shows like Letterman would say, that's what they want. They just want you to stand there and tell your jokes. They don't want you to, to do anything like physical. And so people started thinking, oh, that's one of the rules of stand-up. No, <laughs> there are no rules in stand-up. <laughs> Look at Jim Carrey's act. You yeah. know, He just like twisted himself like a pretzel up there and people loved it. And we forget that there, that's one of the elements. And George Carlin did that. He moved, he moved his, himself in funny mm -hmm. ways and always made those you know, funny faces and stuff. It seems like kid stuff, but it's important like to remember all the, all the things that make something funny. It's funny. I, I remember a Carson, one of the Carson Tonight shows that Carlin did, and I think it was in the early 80s, where he went up and very uncharacteristic of Carlin, he just sat there silent for five minutes in front of the microphone. And I don't know what kind of an experiment it was, but he didn't say a word. And then he just goes to the couch and talks to Johnny. <laughs> I've never seen that one. That sounds bold. Yeah, that was. And, and did, he, they, did people laugh? What, what happened? Oh, man, there was some chuckles, but there there was a lot of just silence because he, he'd make faces. You talk about the madcap part. He'd make yeah, faces he'd like, make faces. Mm, I want to say something, but no. And oh, I, so he went there like he was gonna. He was about to say something. Yeah, but so, it wasn't. It, it wasn't overtly like you know. I don't remember the name of the comedian that would take. He would take like five minutes just to get his microphone set up, and it was yeah. More, that's a funny bit, like getting it getting tangled in the cord. Yeah, and all that. yeah. That's funny. But it it wasn't like that. It was more like you know. I don't know if it's worth it. The attitude was, I don't know if it's worth it for me to say anything tonight. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. I got to find that. So I, I'm always inspired by Mark Twain, who was the first stand-up comic. And he did a thing where he would go on stage and just stand there silently until the audience started laughing. Ah. Then he, then he would know, okay, I got him in the palm of my hand. Now I can begin. He would just stand there and look at them. Yeah. And... That tells you that and the Carlin story you just told tells you the power of stage presence and confidence. It's really all the audience needs. They, they need to know that you're so comfortable up there that you can just stand there in silence and, and it doesn't bother you. you know? And that's and really, that's tough, right? That's really yeah. one of the hardest things to learn is to allow well, yourself to breathe. Time yeah. And the practice. Yeah. There's so many comedians who race through their act because they're nervous about dead time or or no laughs or whatever. Right. And and you step on laughs or you don't give the audience enough time to process what you said. You know, yeah. it's yeah, it's really it, it it was it was one of my major shortcomings for a long time. And you talk about the comedy muscle, you know, when I when I moved from Indiana to Alabama, I didn't do comedy. I think I did comedy like three times in a year. And oh, wow. it, it is not like riding the bike at all. It's no. it, you're starting back from zero when you get back <laughs> on stage. Yeah, we learned that in the the Seinfeld documentary. Yeah. Yeah. When he went back and he was like, "Oof." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you were if you were to have a class of uh, up and coming stand-ups and this is all I want to do is stand up right now, what three points of advice would you give them as they are starting their career? I mean, that's tough because I feel like, you know, most of the best advice has already been told and people know it inside and out. And we've already covered some of it here, but obviously get as much stage time as possible. And if you can't get stage time, put yourself on video and put it on social media. You have to put yourself out there and you have to try stuff and you have to get reactions so you can use that feedback to improve and then go out again. That's like thing number one. If you're not doing that, you're not a comedian and you'll never be a comedian. So that's number one. Number two is know what the goal is. And the goal, well, there's two main goals. The goal is to get comfortable in front of people. And number two, figure out who you are. So figure out what your voice is and you can experiment, you know, you can try to be different parts of yourself and see what connects. But I think people are afraid of experimenting. This is another problem I see comedians struggling with is they've got a few jokes that work pretty well and that work consistently. So they don't really work on improving them or changing their act. And they kind of plateau, you know, they sit there. And the best comedians are always writing new material, always trying new material and cycling out the old material. So 
that was like two and a half things. So the third thing I guess I would say is be in the comedy community, you know? So that doesn't necessarily mean go to hang out with other comics and drink and smoke after the show. What I mean is don't think of stand-up comedy as your only thing. One of the things that, that I, that you can really spot the successful comedians from the middling ones or the unsuccessful ones is they see themselves as an all around comedy person. So you, you were talking earlier about like, how would a stand-up comic get a job at the onion, for example? Well, if they've only done stand-up, they're kind of a one dimensional comedy person. If they have written some funny articles and published them in McSweeney's or the hard times or any of these, there's so many sites that publish funny articles in a magazine, you know, shouts and murmurs every day with the New Yorker, you can send them stuff and start a funny blog of your own, you know, do a comic, do other types of comedy, do voice work, do acting. If you do all that and you apply for a job at the onion, they're going to look at you very seriously because they know that you are obsessed with comedy mm. and you're a well-rounded comedy person. You're not just a, a, a one-track comedy mind. And so part of that is treating your comedy like a business. So why haven't you written a book? Why haven't you written a book with your face on it that's funny stories about your life? Yeah. You know, or just like a primer for your act. You can sell it at shows, give it away at shows, you know, just something to further your brand and to get your identity in front of people. Uh, all successful comedians have written a book. It's just what they do. They write a book, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's, it's, there's no excuse now. You can write a book and upload it to Amazon tonight. There's nothing stopping you. So that's one thing I see Ian's not doing. And I, that's the advice I would give is, do all the comedy things. Another reason to do that, not just to get a job for The Onion, but it makes you a, it makes you a better comedian. It makes you better at all the individual things because you're exercising all the muscles. So if you're just doing comedy and you're not doing the other things, you're like, you've got Arnold Schwarzenegger biceps, but no other muscle development. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you need to work out everything. Don't neglect the calves. Right. You know? <laughs> Don't forget leg day. Don't forget. <laughs> That's great. That last one especially is one that I haven't heard as much. And I, I, I really, I really appreciate you putting that out there. Sure. How do you teach somebody who is not analytical by nature to analyze their act and understand what's working and what's not? That's a good question. So I kind of specialize, I feel in, teaching students who have no background in comedy, but just want to do it. They're interested in it, but they sort of come to the table with no experience. And maybe they even think they're not funny. And I can teach them how to be funny because it is a skill like anything you can learn it. And some people can learn it really quickly. I've had people take an eight week course and start from nowhere. And then after that eight week course, they're getting hired to do comedy full-time professionally. So the way you ask that question is how I hear it a lot from comedians. It's like, well, I'm not analytical. Well, I don't like to do stand-up. I just want to write articles. Or I don't feel like writing articles. So don't think like a pampered three-year-old that doesn't, <laughs> I don't like my broccoli, so I'm not going to eat it. Uh -huh. think, like, think like a working professional. And if you're not good at analyzing your act, get good at it. Mm -hmm. Practice it. Because you need to do it. Yeah. You need to pick it apart and figure out where it could be better, how to get rid of what's not working or whatever. So there are unpleasant parts to the job of being in the comedy business. And you have to do those things because they're part of the job. You have to bomb sometimes. You have to listen to the audience. You have to change what you're doing. You have to do marketing. You have to promote. Some people hate that. They hate the idea. Oh, I can't go out and promote myself. Yeah. I was always one of those people. I hated that. I just want to do the creative work. I just wanted to write the jokes and let other people do all that. But other people often don't step up to help you with that. You need to do it. Yeah. So you got to get yourself in front of people. And those are just the unpleasant parts of the job that, you know, instead of whining about, oh, I don't like that. 
you just got to do it. Right. And, you know, a farmer doesn't get up in the morning and say, well, I don't like milking cows. I'm not, I don't want to feel doing it today. <laughs> no, you get up and you do it. Right, right. That's, that's uh, perfect words for me because I have to force myself to get in the analytical mode. And it's, it, it's all in the amount of energy it takes to do it because you got your natural energy because my natural energy is just being a big idea person and writing that big idea down and then not doing anything with it. So between procrastination and not wanting to look inwardly at how I'm doing, you know, those are the two things that are my Achilles heel. So I understand that I have to put that energy forth. And once you do it a few times, it becomes less and less energy that you have to put forth to do it. You It becomes more natural to you. That's one of the things about life that we forget. Like it's a magic formula. If you just do something a lot, you're going to get good at it. Yeah. <laughs> Practice makes perfect. Yeah. So that's again, that's why it's so handy to be obsessed because if you, you're obsessed, you're going to keep doing it. So you're going to automatically get that practice. So, and if you're not obsessed, it's going to be a hard slog. You know, you're going to be getting up groggy every day, forcing yourself through it. And that's no fun. Yep. And I, I like to tell people that don't want to, you know, tape their, tape their bits or, listen to them afterwards. I'm like, you've already done the hard part. You had enough guts to go up on stage and put a microphone in your hand and say those words. That's the hard part. Now do the easy part, listen to it and find out what's funny and what's not funny. That's yeah. That's the, that's the only advice I give in my limited ability as a comedian. No, it's good advice. You know, you should videotape or at least audio tape every performance and study what's working, what's not working, you know, and ask, ask people that you trust to assess it and tell you what they think and just use all that when you go back to the drawing board. Right, right. Okay, so this has been fun, but... We yes. have a new segment on the show. This is only the third time I've done it. And I hit you up with this this morning, so I don't expect you to bring anything. But if you have something, it'll be great. So this oh, I, I got some. Excellent. This, this segment is called, Is This Anything? And this is where we bring something to the table that we either haven't done before, we've done it, hasn't worked, it's a premise. It's something we think is funny, but we want to bounce it off somebody to see what they think. And since you're the guest and you have something, I'm going to let you choose. Do you go first or do I go first? I would like you to go first. Okay, excellent. Because you've got an Onion article, you said. Yep, so in honor, in honor of having... The dude who started The Onion, I did an Onion-style article, and I want to tell you, this is my first, total first draft, because I wanted I wanted it to be natural, and I've, I've reread it once, and I've already seen things that I would like to change, but I'm going to give it to you the way it is. Okay, so Onion is article. It, is this like a news and brief article? Or yeah, it? yeah, it's just a, just a okay. little brief. Boomer kicked out of local social group because he likes Lizzo. Tom Tutley is going to have to find a new group of guys to hang out at the local watering hole in Hillsdale, Hillsdale, Ohio. He found out his membership in the all-male club Order of the Angry Buffaloes was revoked after he pl played About Damn Time by Lizzo on the jukebox at Flappy's Bar and Grill where they meet every Wednesday. Jerry Stevens, vice president of the Angry Buffaloes, told us, we thought Tom pushed the button for that damn time song by mistake. Kenny asked Tom if he needed new glasses and offered to play a Bob Seger tune with his own quarter. Tom said he liked Luzzo or Luzzo or whatever her name is, and then said, maybe we should try to listen to something new too. We thought he was joking. And after we left, he said, maybe we ought to make our own dinner once in a while and help with the laundry. That was enough for the members of the Order of the Angry Buffalo. Tom Tutley was banned from the group. The owner of Flappies has replaced About Damn Time with Come Sail Away by Styx, and he said he didn't know how that damn song got there in the first place. Tom Tutley has since been seen hanging around the local skate park, at skate park and talking about voting Democrat. End of my first Onion story. All right. Not bad. Like your structure and uh, joke beats are not bad. The 
the critique I have for you, and this is common with any, any Onion article that someone writes, is I think the headline could be funnier. So the way to do a funny headline, the way the Onion does it, is they write hundreds of them. They read through those and in a, in a long meeting, and they pick just a few that seem like they could work. And then, so then you have this short list. And out of that short list, you talk about, okay, could this, well, how could this work? What would the story be, et cetera, et cetera. And so it goes through this long winnowing process. So anytime somebody wants to write an Onion article, I always suggest they write at least 25 headlines mm. and then get feedback on those. And whichever one is people's favorite, write that one uh-huh. because that's going to be the funniest one. You know, the headline wasn't bad, but I don't think if you had written 25, I'm not sure it would have been the number one. Right, right. And I was actually, that was one of the things I looked at because I know in some of these submissions, you, they just ask for headlines. Exactly. You know, give it, give us 10, give us 10 headlines. And I was thinking Lizzo gets a boomer kicked out of a local social group. You know, that totally changes it up. I'm blaming it on Lizzo. So yeah, I, I could come yep, up with a hundred of them right now, but I won't belabor it. But what about the rest of it? Where, what would you say would be some points to improve on the rest of it? Like I said, it's all about the headline. Your structure was great. Like you had good joke beats and you had a good closer. You know, so much of it is the little hinge that swings the big door is really funny headline. Once you got that, story almost doesn't even have to be funny. Like people are <laughs> laughing before they even start reading the story. Yeah, yeah. If you've got a few little joke escalations in there, you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So you've got all that down. Now you just have to be a little more, a little more uh, crazy about how many headlines you write before you pick one to actually write out. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to make and home- I don't variations of that one. I mean, totally different ideas, 25 totally different ideas. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to I'm going to make homework for myself and Great. send you I'll send you my headlines and you tell me which one you think you like. Great. Okay, Scott, what you got for um, me? So I got a bit that I've tried and it didn't seem to work and it it's a little confusing to me why it didn't work because it involves the human ass, which is the number one funniest thing in comedy. Uh-huh. You put the human butt in anything and it gets a laugh. So uh-huh. why this doesn't work? I don't know. But the bit is basically like, why did we, as humans, why did we arbitrarily decide that the face was the part of the body that we should use to identify ourselves? You know, like on social media, on business cards, whatever. We should switch it up. Let's, let's use the ass. And so on, you know, go on LinkedIn and you, you see an ass on every profile. And it's like, oh, yeah, I, I recognize, uh, you know, Bob's hairy ass from accounting or whatever. <laughs> and that, that's basically the joke. I would do, I would riff on it a little bit. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, it just, I feel like that should work. But so <laughs> maybe I just haven't found the right, uh, the right escalation for it. Right. The, the concept is good. And I'm trying to think of like a really powerful punchline you can put on that. Because you could, you could carry that for a good minute just doing examples of where people's ass was posted and a presidential portrait. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in front of a flag. Yeah. 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 But what do you, what wraps that all up in a bow and makes it something that people just crack up about that? Um, it's interesting. I mean, I guess you could do, you know, maybe it couldn't work, you know, maybe I mean, you go right to genitals. Yeah. Oh, J- Jerry changed his pro- profile picture on Facebook, and looks like somebody got an ass bleach. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's good. No, something like that is good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's kind of doing an analogy to plastic surgery. Yeah. yeah. It's, I think going with more of an analogy is the way to find the jokes. Yeah. So find out things that, like, tropes about having faces on social media apply that to asses yeah and that yeah that's a good that's a good angle to go with for i'll, I'll keep working on that one. yeah yeah that that's great well thank you for the commentary on on my thing i i actually i i ripped that out in about 10 minutes this morning and congratulations and, and uh i i have all these things rolling in my head the 
I and I always like to make fun of boomers because I'm right at the edge of boomers, and uh, you know I, I'm 64, so or I'm I was born in 64. I'm not quite 64 yet, but I I like to use that boomer crutch a lot in my act. So that's that's my thing. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Boomers are a great butt of the joke right now. Yes. Yes. And so when, you're, when you're making fun of yourself, it's very easy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Deprecating humor is the best. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it doesn't matter if they're laughing with you or at you. They're yeah. Laughing. Yep. Yep. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Man, I appreciate you being on the show, Scott. This was this was very illuminating. I hope that you got to say a few things that you haven't said on podcasts. At yeah, least in a while. A, yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun to talk about different stuff. I Excellent. Excellent. Where can folks find you if they want to how to write, learn how to write funny or listen to the podcast uh, or anything about you. Thanks for asking. I'm pretty easy to find in your computer. Even if you spell my name wrong (laughs) with D I C K E R S instead of D I K K Google will figure out you're trying to find me and they will will send you to all my things. (laughs) So yeah, try to Google. Yes. And definitely folks listen to his podcast because, you know, the Patton Oswalt one was one of my favorites. And uh, oh, the, the, the guy is one of my favorite as far as writing and taking that writing yeah. and making a performance that not only makes you laugh, but is so endearing is just, it's really, he, he's, he's really one of my favorites. And that was one of my favorite episodes of yours, but oh, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. And I, I'm just Glad you came on. Me too. I appreciate what you're doing very much. I love your podcast. So keep up the great work. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Scott. All right. Thank you. Take care, Scott.